decades. Um, it's difficult times, it's challenging times, uh, but we can still find our faith, we can still find ways to reach out. Uh, one way that you can do that is uh, Jamie and I are actually going to be doing a Facebook Live over on the Taylor Street Youth Group page, and we're inviting our teens and their, and their families and anyone that wants to, really. Uh, we're going to be doing a 2 o'clock uh, live stream, and we're going to be talking about the stories of the Bible and how cinematic and how deep and how rich they are, and we're going to be encouraging you as a family to talk about those and maybe the way you see yourself in some of those characters. So uh, you can come back at 2 o'clock and do that. But right now, I want to travel back in time to a story that takes place on a scale literally the size of space. In 1791, there was going to be a solar event that was called the Transit of Venus. And what this is, is Venus, the planet, uh, passed between the Earth and the Sun. And even way back in the 1780s, they knew that this event was coming down the pike. And some really smart people, I don't know how they figured this out, but they said, hey, if we send scientists around the globe to different points, and everybody takes data about this little black disk that's going to pass in front of the sun in the middle of the day, we can compile that data and we can figure out how far the earth is from the sun. Now, to me, this may as well be magic. Like, I could not figure this out. But they figure this out, and so they prepare for, for this very important day. And in 1790, several months before this solar event, there's a scientist, and his name was Guillaume Le Gentil. And yes, I practiced that a lot. But he was a Frenchman, obviously, from the name. So several months before, he leaves France to travel around the African coast to India. And when he's on his boat, he's got his gear, he's got his material, he's ready to go. He's on the boat, and they start getting close. And as they tend to do, the British and the French go to war. It ended up being called the Seven Years' War. At the time, it didn't have a name because they didn't know how long the war was going to last. Anyway, he starts getting to his port, and the port's closed because the British have overtaken the city, and this ship is from France, and there's no way that they're going to let Guillaume Le Gentil's boat dock there and get off. So he still has plenty of time. He's not freaked out. He says, I'll get off at the next port of call, and then I'll make my way by land to where I need to be, and I'm going to take my data, and I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to do this. The wind said no. We're all from Lee County. We know the wind does what it's going to do. You can have plans. The wind does not care. The winds blow, and the day comes of this transit of Venus, and Guillaume Le Gentil watches it with his gear all stored up in a box from the boat. He watches this little black disc pass across the sun, and his gear is useless because boats rock and tilt and lilt, and he takes zero data. Bad day, right? The good news is this transit of Venus, they, they occur in doublets eight years apart. Now, the bad news is after the second one, it's like over 100 years until the next doublet. So he says, you know what? I have eight years. I'm going to be ready for the next one. So the Olympics are four years apart. You know, if you miss out, then, you know, you got to wait four years to try again. 
Well, he has eight years to wait, but he faithfully waits. He, he gets his gear out, he sets it all up, and on June 4th of 1769, eight years after the first one, he is prepared. Now, this transit of Venus, they know that it lasts approximately three hours, 14 minutes and seven seconds. They know how long this lasts. And so he is ready to take data this entire time. He's going to be faithful. He's going to be good. He is prepared for this day. And everything is set up. The gear is polished. He's ready. He's looking up at the sky. It's just about to start. And then a cloud moves in. And the cloud stays there for three hours, 14 minutes, and seven seconds. He takes almost no data. He sees almost nothing. He's heartbroken. He packs his gear up, he gets onto a boat to go home defeated with an empty scientific notebook. As he's going home, he gets dysentery. <laughs> he gets sick. So at the next port of call, he gets off, he stays in a uh, recovery place for a year getting over dysentery. He gets onto another boat. He starts going home. They're going around the uh, African coast and a hurricane hits and he's shipwrecked. He gets onto another boat after the hurricane. He makes it to France. He finally is ready to be home and have some peace. His wife is remarried. His family's declared him dead, and they've looted his entire estate. He has nothing. They've taken everything that he owned. Guillaume Le Gentil was doing science, but day in and day out, he felt like he was in a fight. He was in a fight for what he believed in about finding truth. And he was willing to sacrifice and suffer as part of this fight because he had found his purpose in life. Let me tell you about another man who traveled a lot as well. His name was John Wesley. Now, he was an Anglican priest who started a movement that was known as Methodism. Today, that's morphed into our friends and neighbors just over there, the Methodist Church, but long before any of that, he was just a faithful minister of God. And in the course of his preaching, he traveled over 250,000 miles across Great Britain and Ireland. That's over a quarter of a million miles. And he did it on horseback. That's literally 10 times around the globe. He preached over 40,000 sermons. Now, I plan on going like 20 minutes right now. I don't preach that long. Back then, they preached hours. Sometimes he preached three times a day. He would start when the sun came up. And not only was he preaching this whole time, he was in a fight. He was in a fight against the leaders of the Anglican church that told him that he wasn't allowed to train uh, non- clergy to do pastoral care and to do discipling and to have a leadership role in the church. He's training people to do these things, and the church says, whoa, you can't do that, John Wesley. That's too crazy. That's out there. And so he's fighting his church. He was fighting poor health. He was fighting fatigue of traveling horseback a quarter of a million miles. This whole time, he's preaching, but he's also in a fight. He is, he is in a fight to point people to Jesus. 
These men lived and fought and suffered for what they believed. But what about someone willing to die for what they believe? Now I want to tell you about William Tyndale. William Tyndale defied the church and even the king of his day because of a radical belief. He believed that everyone had the right to read and study the Bible in the language that they spoke. And so he was one of the first people to translate the Hebrew and the Greek text of the Bible into the language that I'm speaking now, English. Now, you would think for such a feat that, that they would have built statues to honor him, that they would have lauded him and praised him and said, thank you for giving us the very word of God in the language that we speak. But the powers to be of the day, the church and the king, convicted him of heresy. And for that crime, he was strangled, and then his body was burned at the stake. And with his dying breath, he literally prayed to God to open the eyes of the king. I tell you all of those stories because I really want to say this. The world does not care about what we as Christians believe. Heaven, hell, sinners, saints, communion, Jesus, even the cross. They don't care what we talk about. But the world takes note about what we are willing to bleed for. What will we suffer for? What will we sacrificially fight for? Picture this. You're at a luncheon, at a community function. And there's two men who come to speak at the luncheon, and both of them are presidents of a nonprofit group. The first one stands up and he has charts and graphs and goes into a lot of detail of his organization and the good work that they do. And everybody approvingly kind of nods and says, great job. The second one gets up to speak. And his charity does equally worthy work. But this speaker describes the time that they actually bandaged the wounds of a man that was injured. Or he tells the time about they picked up the foster kids in the middle of the night. And then he talks about taking meals to firemen in the middle of the night as they fight a blaze. And as he tells stories, you begin to realize that he was there, that these are first-person accounts that the president was actually on the front line. He was there in the middle of the night. He saw the blood. He saw the tears. That he's actually there. Now, you may give a little bit of money to both groups, but at the end of the day, if you're anything like me, you want to give your heart and your soul to that second group because you believe that there is someone at the top that is willing to work, bleed, and fight for this cause. And that brings me to one of my favorite people in the entirety of the Bible, and that's the Apostle Paul. Several years back, I, I went to a conference where Leonard Sweet uh, was a speaker, and he did an exegesis of Paul's back. And he described the beatings and the lashings and the stonings and being lost at sea and everything that the Apostle Paul endured in his ministry, and then he asked the question, what do you think his back would have looked like? And how all those scars and those bruises, arthritis, everything that he would have had, how that back 
tells a story. And the story that it tells is the gospel. It tells of a person who is willing to sacrifice and to fight for people's very souls. Now, we know that Paul took three journeys. He might have taken a fourth, but it's estimated that he traveled over 10,000 miles. That's present-day Palestine, Syria, Turkey, and Greece. He traveled all throughout that land. He planted between 14 and 20 different congregations. Um, That doesn't count the the churches that he also served and taught. Those are just the ones that, that he planted. And for a lot of those years, he also was doing a day job. He was building tents. Many of those years would have felt like a constant physical struggle. It would have been a constant drain. And he lists a few of these in 2 Corinthians 11. He says that he was frequently jailed, that he was severely flogged, that he was exposed to death again and again. Five times, five times, he got the 39 lashes from the Jews. Three times they beat him with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. Paul, get off the boats, take the Greyhound bus. Shipwrecked three times. He says, I spent a day and a night in the open sea. He says, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers and bandits and from Gentiles and Jews, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. Again, Paul, get off the boats. Uh, I've been in danger from false believers. He says, I have labored and toiled. I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. He says, I've been cold and naked. And then he closes this section. And he says, says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. On top of all this physical stuff, the jailings, the beatings, the shipwrecks, all of it. He says, then I also have this spiritual weight that I care about these churches. And it's why I'm doing this. And it's what drives me. In Galatians 6, Paul closes that letter out. He says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. And this same Paul says, follow I, Paul, as I follow Christ. So now the marks on the body, they kind of start to make sense, right? Because do I even need to bring up Jesus and His body? That it was spat upon, that it was whipped, that it was mutilated, that they drove spikes through it, and then they exposed his body and put it upon a cross. But I believe that God wants people who will not fall back from that fight. That God wants people who will run to where the fighting is the most fierce. Many years ago, I took some campers to Pine Springs. And the guys' cabins are down here, and then there's a shower house and kind of the middle, and then down the road a bit is where the girls stay. And it was a stupid idea, it wasn't mine, but some people thought it would be funny to put a teenage boy in a bear suit and to run him in front of the guys' cabins at night and kind of get a big uh, uh, response from the guy campers. And so a teenage boy and some of the staff, that's what they did that night. And so people are screaming, bear, bear, bear. And because they're teenage boys and they're not very smart, they run to the window and they run 
to the door and they see a teenage boy in a bear suit with Converse shoes. So obviously it's not a truly scary thing for the boys. And they start screaming and hollering and they run out and play with the bear. And it's all fun and games. Uh, but down the road, where the girls were, the only thing that they hear is bear, 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 bear attack. And then they hear chaos. They hear screaming. Now there was a cabin that had ten girl campers in there and one counselor. Nine of the campers dove into their bunks and put their sleeping bags and pillows over their heads because everybody knows that bears cannot penetrate sleeping bags. I mean, that's the safest place to be is in your sleeping bag. And so that's their rationale. Nine campers do that. One camper ran for the door, and her counselor had to physically stop her. And she said, what are you doing? She said, my brother is over there. See, she was running to where the fighting was the fiercest to protect her younger brother. I believe that's the people that God is looking for. Paul writes a letter to his protege, Timothy, and it's one of the last things that Paul ever wrote. And in chapter 4 of this letter, he tells Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And this thing that we're in, this thing called life, sometimes it's a fight. It's a fight to be a good husband, a good wife, a, a good employee. It's a fight to be a good follower of Christ. And so as we continue what Doug began, Paul says, I fought the good fight. And if you're going to sum up the life of Paul, you could only say that he was in a fight and that he was faithful. And now, our battlefront is in two different places. The first one is we have to fight our fleshly nature. I have a fleshly nature that I inherited from my father, Adam. And, it, and it's a fallen one. But I also have a godly, redeemed nature that I inherited from my Father God. And the two are at war. And so, what do I live out of? What do I allow to lead my life? What story has captured my heart? The one that wants to please the flesh or the one that wants to please the Spirit? Paul says that he has crucified his flesh. Now, I don't know about you, but any time my sinful, fleshly side is threatened, it roars back to life, and it wants to overpower me. And when that doesn't work, my flesh can be really subtle and really tricky, and I can rationalize almost anything. And so this, this battle that we have with the flesh, it's one that every disciple must engage in. You won't accidentally stumble into being a, a moral, spiritual person. Your flesh will try to trick you and war against you. Our second battle is spiritual. Paul also says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are literally fighting hell out there. 
This second fight is with actual demons. They exist. Satan is the prince of the air and the small g god of this age. And there are plenty of ways to fight Satan. But I'm going to tell you one that still gives me goosebumps. About a year ago, over Easter weekend, I took a group of teens and some volunteers here, and we went to Legacy. Now, Legacy is a pro-life group that supplies resources and help for young ladies that are pregnant, that might otherwise choose to terminate that young life that's inside their bodies. And so they help with Bible studies and with classes in parenting and with diapers and bottles and blankets and all that stuff. They do whatever they can do to help people to choose life. This is a wonderful organization. And they're fighting abortion. And when you fight the taking of innocent life, you are literally fighting hell. And so about a year ago, we were going to go paint their building. And I gathered our teenagers around. And I sit on the outside. It's a bunch of kids that are spreading around a bunch of paint. That's all it looks like. But spiritually, the fight that we're in, we are marching through the fire of hell. And we're marching against the very gate of hell. And we're attacking them. That we're doing something that matters. That this is a big deal. And so I give him this little pep talk. And then I ask Raul to say the prayer. And Raul's timing is perfect. He says, let's pull the pin on the first grenade and drop it in. And I said, that's exactly what we're doing. That we are in this fight and we're fighting evil and it matters. But you can fight evil lots of ways. You can fight evil with your lawnmower. You can go serve a person by mowing their yard. You can fight evil with your telephone. And these days when we're all trapped inside of our homes, there's somebody who's lonely. There's somebody who's not getting attention now. There is somebody that is in spiritual darkness and the demons of loneliness have come out of hell to torture somebody, somebody that you know. And you can pick up your phone right now. I don't even care if you get off the live stream, if you know that there's somebody that needs this. Get off this live stream and go do battle against Satan. You can call a person that is in darkness and literally light from heaven breaks through and those demons flee. You can pick up your phone and you can say, I was thinking about you. And you can reflect God's love off of you onto them and they can see themselves the way that God does instead of just in this, in this pit of loneliness. There are lots of ways to fight hell and it matters that we do it. Finally, you can fight Satan by drawing near unto God. The Bible says that when we draw near to Jesus, Satan flees. Don't waste these days. Pray, meditate, fast, read the Bible. Read the Bible with your family. Um, God desires us. He wants to be with us. You're in a fight. And I pray that you're dangerous in that fight. I pray that you brawl and you scrap against evil and cruelty and hate. I pray that you sacrificially place your body between the forces of evil and those that that evil would prey upon. Like Paul, I pray that you may be poured out as an offering to God. In this fight, may you bear the marks of Jesus upon your body, and may you be scarred and broken 
for him. May you pour your strength out for others. And may you exhaust this tent in which you live until Christ raises it back from the dead. If you're ready to join this fight, if you need to be baptized, if you need to repent, if you need to rededicate your life, reach out, let someone know. Someone from here will, will, will find you. We will call you. We will Facebook you. We will text you. We want to pray with anyone who is ready to give up this body for the fight.